so we are absolutely glad that you're here. Hopefully you had a warm welcome already, but I just want to extend another welcome to you and tell you, I'm glad that you chose to worship with us, to hang out with us, uh, maybe to take something away, learn something that God wants to do in your life today. Uh, we've been doing a series uh, called Avoiding Colossal Mistakes, and so some of you have been following along with that series. Uh, we've also been doing a reading plan with that, and I want to just tell you from the very beginning, we're going to deviate from the series a little. We're not going to do the reading plan. We're not going to stick with that. We have a unique and special message that we feel compelled to share with you this morning, especially around the heart of adoption. And so when I was thinking about the concept of adoption, the concept of God's heart for this particular issue, my thoughts were drawn to a really cool book in the Bible called James. And so if you know anything about James, James was a guy who was in Jerusalem. He wrote this book. Most people think he was the brother of Jesus. And so he's got a unique perspective. And because he had come up through a Jewish background, he had a real big heart for the law of God and how the law of God was to be lived out in the church and how it was missing. Now, what's interesting about this fact was there was another guy through history that did not like the book of James. His name was Martin Luther. So, and it wasn't because he was brewing his own beer. That was not why Martin Luther didn't like this book. This guy came out of the Reformation. As he came out of the Reformation, which was a season in time where he was kicking back on some of the things in the Catholic Church, he was aggravated with the fact that the church was manipulating people. And the church was manipulating people in this way. They were telling people it's faith. And when you add that faith to works, it gets you to heaven. And the church, what that was doing at that time was they said, if you don't do these specific things this specific way, you're not going to go to heaven. And the church was using this reality of this tension that's in the scriptures about how we behave, how we act, but all that's connected to faith to manipulate people. And Martin Luther got pretty ticked off. And if you've watched any of the movies or you know anything about history, maybe you took a world civ class at one point. He took 95 things that had really upset him about the church, and he nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg. And it was called his 95 Theses. And in that 95 Theses, he was explaining, here's 95 things I think the church has really gone off on. And one of them was connected to this idea of faith plus works. And so when Luther was working out this whole idea of what the church should look like from his perspective, he struggled with the idea that we should be adding anything to that dynamic of faith and faith in Christ alone. And so when he comes to this book that James had written, which is such a practical book about how to live, he got aggravated because he thought it rubbed against his idea of what faith looked like. In fact, let me quote him for a second. He said, therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw, is how Martin Luther put it, compared to these others. For it has nothing of the nature of what he thought was the gospel, the good news in it. Now, he never said he wanted it thrown out of the Bible, but he struggled with having it in the Bible because he felt it rubbed up against his idea of what faith should look like. And so when I look at this, I think it creates a really cool tension for us. So if you've got a Bible or you've got your notes, open it up. You can follow along. We're going to look at James 1, 25 through 27, and you're going to see how this has a real practical approach to adoption specifically and those um, real practical nature of faith and why it was a rub for Martin Luther, but why it's maybe something that we could take away today. So starting in verse 25, listen to this. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing so or doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a right rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
So you look at this, and again, there's this tension. I think Luther picks up on a tension that's been actually a tension since the beginning of the church. He picks up on this tension of faith and what we do, how we live. And that these two things come colliding together in real people like you and I. And so we have this gift that God has given us through faith. And it's an amazing gift. But at the same time, what are we to do with it? How are we to live? How is it supposed to be lived out amongst us? It was interesting in just doing Riverfest. Some of you may or may not know we just were a part of Riverfest. We had a booth out there. We had a really good time engaging with a lot of people. And as people came up to our booth, they would ask questions about, well, what kind of church is it? What's it like? And they were asking specific questions to try to figure out, is this a match for me? Does it fit for me? And some of the questions they asked were interesting to me. Some people would ask, is it a full gospel church? Which I always want to respond to that. No, we're like a quarter gospel, maybe a half gospel. That's as far as we go. But what they're really asking is they're saying, are the charismatic gifts of the church evident and moving around the church? Another question was, is it traditional? You know, do you have liturgy? Do you have hymns? Do you have different types of instruments? These are things that they would ask. Some would say, is it contemporary? Like, do you have a tattoo parlor out in the foyer? That would be full contemporary for me. Some people are thinking this way. But around all of these questions, what people are really asking is, what's in it for me? What is the thing I'm looking for? And in that, when we look at this idea of what James is pushing at, I think the, the tension that's there, it's this idea of faith and how we live. And as those things slam together, sometimes we get confused about what the church is supposed to look like. And what the church is supposed to look like is a group of people who are passionately in love with God and so passionately in love with him that they want to love other people around them. And that they love them in the context of what God has shared. In 1989, I was thinking about this. I had a moment where I began to understand the full impact of God's grace. If you don't know what grace is, I love this acrostic. It's God's riches, right? At Christ's expense. So he paid for everything, and in him paying for everything, for my sin specifically, he opens up this floodgate of God's mercy and grace and love to become available in my life. And I remember being blown away by God's love. And at that point, I became what I think the early church had it right. They called it a follower of the way. They didn't use the word Christian at first. They said they're followers of the way. So the church knew that there was something that happens in the heart of a person that transforms them, and they get excited not only about God's love, but God's love shared to other people. 30 years later, I was thinking about that. Oh my gosh, 30 years later, after that initial moment, I've learned more and more about this tension that, you know, God has given me this grace. God has presented me with this love, but he's presented it to me because he wants me to learn how to walk and live in this way. And as I've learned to understand that, this tension has become a little more real to me. So here's the first thing I think we could take. We need to acknowledge that there is a tension. There is a tension in the faith between the inheritance that we get by faith and the call to join in Christ's sacrifice. See, if you look at what Jesus did in his time on earth, the short time he had, he had 33 and a half years, three and a half years of an active ministry. In that short amount of time that he was here, he gave up all of his own wants, all of his own desires, and he pushed directly toward giving his life up on the cross so that you and I and the entire world may understand this love. That love is not something that I get. It's not a preference by which that I join. It's not a club that I'm a part of. But it's receiving this kind of life. And this life of Christ, that's a life of sacrifice and atonement and pain. 
to actually give others the greatest thing. When we, he, when we began to understand that and he showed that to us and then we began to live it out t- tangibly, we began to understand what the full gospel looks like. William Barclay, a great commentator, some of you like Barclay, listen to what he said about this tension, specifically why Martin Luther hated this verse and really struggled with this book of the Bible. He said, this is the kind of passage in James that which Martin Luther disliked so much. He disliked the idea of law altogether. For with Paul, he would have said, Christ is the end of the law, based on Romans 10. James said, Luther drives us to law and works. And yet, beyond all doubt, there's a sense in which James is right. Hmm. There is an ethical law which Christians must seek to put into action. That law is to be found first in the Ten Commandments and then the teachings of Jesus. So I love what the commentator here, William Barclay, is saying. He's saying from the very beginning, God saw in his law a way that we might love one another fully. I love the way my pop-up used to say, pop-up Charlie used to say, Larry, God didn't save you to sit. He saved you to serve. And what he meant by that is he said, I see so many people that they come to the church, they hear a good message, they enjoy some good music, but at the end of the day, really, church is just all about what they receive and what they get. And they never leave the church compelled to be on the same mission as Jesus. And when that happens, then you begin to see their church really lived out. This has been since the very beginning. Uh, There's a book called the Didache. It was one of the books I recently started reading. It was written somewhere between 100 and 200 AD, right after the the scriptures were put together, the ones that we have that we use in the New Testament. In the Didache, there's an interesting part in the second chapter. Heather and I were reading it recently. She loved it. She's like, all kinds of cool little quotes in there, right? And But there's one part that really caught my attention historically. And it's in the second chapter in the the commentary of these early um, disciples of the apostles. They were recording what they heard from the apostles, from the teachings of Jesus. And in this book, it says, do not murder. That's like a new, it's a given, right? But also said, do not abort a child. It's in the second chapter of the Didache. Now, their idea of this was very interesting. In Rome, it was considered a merciful death if you had a child that was unwanted to leave them out in the field to die of exposure. And this was law, a lawful act in Rome. And so they would leave all these children, mainly girls, by the way, because they wanted boys for war and combat and all those pieces. They would leave all of these girls to be left out on the side of the hill to die of exposure. And the early church, which was really understanding what it meant to have this tension to be followers of the way, not just receivers of grace, receivers of mercy, but to be the ones that extended that mercy and grace to others, began to go out into these fields as they saw these children left on these fields, and they would collect them, and they would raise them. And the very idea of the first foster home, the first place for orphans, was birthed from the church. Because they began to understand this tension. What was really interesting was it aided in the spread of Christianity because all of those boys that everybody wanted one day grew up. And they had to get married and they couldn't find women because all the women had been left on the hill and they had to go to the church to find them. They said, fine, you can marry, but you got to convert. And that's one of the ways Christianity actually went forward. But here's the reality. This tension exists, and it's for you and I to wrestle with. Here's something that I found that was interesting. Grace, I believe, has greater value. I think this is what is being communicated when it's shared and not hoarded. When it's shared. 
But this is opposite from the world's thinking, isn't it? Isn't it opposite from the way the world thinks? Let me give you some examples from, from my own background. I love to play guitar. Some of you know that. Adrian, you like to play guitar, right? How much would you be willing to pay for a great guitar? How much, man? Top dollar. Give me a price. He says, I don't know. Gwyneth, how much would you let Adrian pay for a guitar? <laughs> What's that? That's a different answer, she says. So I was Googling. I was just kind of curious about what are some of the most rare guitars in the world? Well, here's one of them. I put a picture in. This is a Gibson Les Paul from 1959. It was the original Les Paul. And if you'd like to have it, it'll only cost you $258,000 and change. Why does it cost so much? There were only a few made. It's very rare. And this one specifically only had one owner. So that's valuable, right? In our, in our way of thinking, one odor hasn't messed it up. They've held on to this one thing, and there's only a few, so it's worth more money. If you're a car person, I don't know how much your wives would let you pay for a car, right, or, or your spouse. But here's another one I found. If you like Porsches, you want a 1972. That was the year I was born. Makes it a real good year. Um, and there were only 11 made of this specific 19, uh, Porsche 916. It only cost you about a half a mil if you want this car. Because there were only a few made, and this one had one owner. Now think about the way we think. We think this is what makes something valuable. Only a few people have had it. It's been isolated and it's rare. It's unique. In God's economy, it's the other way around. That's what I represent to you. In God's economy, it's flipped the other way. It's when something that's so common, so beautiful, so obtainable for all people can be shared to those that don't have it that it has the greatest value. That's, I think, what God wants us to understand about this tension between faith and works. A lot of you know the old uh, song from Sunday school, right? Father Abraham, right? I dare you to do it in church. What is it? Father Abraham, his sons. I knew you knew it. Father, sons had. And I am one of them. So let's just praise the Lord. I knew you did the right arm. I knew, like, yeah, yeah. And then the right arm goes and the left arm goes right. I love it. I didn't know this song. I didn't grow up in church, but my wife taught it to me. <laughs> we call him Father Abraham because he's the father of faith. And he's an excellent example in the Old Testament of the same truth. He responded to God by faith, and God gave him this faith so that he might share it with all people. Genesis 22, it's not in your notes, but Genesis 22, 18 says it this way. And through your offspring, Abraham, All nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. So faith plus action have always been connected together in Scripture. And God's law and wisdom reflects his heart. It reflects his character. Sometimes we look at God's law about what I can't do and how it's restrictive. But it reveals his heart and his character and his love for us and how he wants the very best for us. And that's why they've always been connected. A consistent thread of God's word is his heart specifically for orphans. And for widows, most people think that James, who grew up Jewish, is quoting Psalm 68. Look at the parallel. He's father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The psalmist's perspective is definitely shaped on their Jewish heritage, so is James. And I believe they, re, they, they use the land in a very specific way here. Remember, they had come out of an exodus. They had been in captivity with Egypt, and they came out into a parched land, but they were supposed to be moving toward a land that was flowing with milk and honey and beautiful. And it was an amazing land that God was going to purchase for them. 
But they were rebellious. They wanted things their way. They wanted things to go the way they wanted them. And I think we're in the same boat many times as Christians. We get comfortable. We don't like change. We don't want to move to where God is moving, how God's at work. And if you feel parched this morning, maybe it's because you're rooted in the wrong land. Maybe you're rooted in the wrong place. And I think that when God begins to move in the hearts of people, he challenges them. If you know the history of Israel, they had the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. And it would, it would be over the place where God inhabited with his people. And when it would move, the people would move to follow God. If they stayed, they risked not only being parched, but dying in the desert. And this is where we are. When I was thinking about this, I was specifically thinking about how dehydration is such an interesting dynamic. Because once you get it, it sneaks up on you at times. And you don't know why. I went on a mission trip to Peru. By the way, if you ever go on a mission trip, Mike's good about this, but other missionaries aren't. Uh, make sure you ask them what to eat and what not to eat. These are important things when you're not in the country. And someone didn't tell me there's certain things in Peru you should not eat. One of them was called ceviche. Anybody had it? It's good, by the way. Came down one morning, hanging out with my, uh, the peeps we were staying with, and they made me ceviche. And all I could understand in my limited understanding of Spanish was, this is good, you should eat it. And I'm like, okay. So I ate it. Three months later, I'm at the hospital because I can't get hydrated. I'm going on jogs, coming back at the house, passing out. My wife's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. Had some parasite that was keeping me from being hydrated. I didn't know why, but I knew I was parched. And when you're really parched, it impacts you. I think this is not only for us spiritually, but it's also true for us um, physically and spiritually. About a year and a half ago, I heard from somebody that was starting to feel stirred. They said they were parched spiritually. They weren't sure what it meant. Is God calling me back into a certain role of ministry? Is God calling us to a certain specific time? They weren't sure, but they began to pray and they began to say, God, you know, we want to do something unique and new. They began communicating this to their small group. And their small group even began to look for something they would do to move to follow God from being parched into the place where maybe they could feel more refreshed. And I remember a year and a half ago, I got a call from Dan and his refreshment came in a surprising way that he wasn't expecting. We're going to sing. We're not singing. We're not singing. <laughs> oh, see. I am a C. I am a CH. I am a CH. But, you know, I was, that was one of the, when I grew up. I'll just sing everything. No, I, I remember growing up. And that was a song that I sang. And that was one of the first songs I, I knew. But about five years ago, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I didn't really feel much like a Christian. Uh, I was going really through a dark place. I had recently left my employer uh, for the past like, nine years or eight years. Uh, I was a church. I was in ministry, many of you don't know, uh, for almost 20 years, full time. Um, and I just was parched. I wasn't really understanding um, what God wanted me to do. It's interesting that you bring up Psalms uh, 68 because if you read down in verse 7 through 10, it talks about the God who, who went through Sinai and shook mountains and provided all this stuff for the Israelites. Uh, I wasn't feeling that, God. I was, I was, I was dry. And, you know, and a lot of times you come to a crossroads where you're like, what does God want me to do? 
And sometimes we say, I'm going to do that, Lord, because you told me. Other times we just say, you know what, I'm comfortable, I don't want to do that. And so that's where I was. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to do it if God told me to do it because it's just where I was. But luckily, God has a sense of humor, and we had our fifth child. I was 42, and I'm looking in the next 20 years, I'm going to be, like, retired. (laughs) And my kid's going to be graduating high school, and I'll be in the walker. You know, and I'm like, that doesn't sound appealing to me. But what it did do is it brought us on our next journey, which was, hey, honey, you know, since we're going to be, you know, doing parenting thing for another 18 years, we, let's take a kid out of the system. You know, let's be someone that can be a, a voice of change. And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. You know, my wife and me started looking at this uh, um, website called adoptuskids.org. And we found this perfect kid. So one thing led to another. We went to a church event. Larry invited to me. I was still going to church at the time, uh, <clears throat> haphazardly. But, um, and so we went to a church. We met a friend there. It was a mutual acquaintance of ours that happened to lead the DSS recruitment effort in Wacomico County. So we sat down with her, and she says, oh, yeah, at this church event. She said, this is your initial meeting. Now we're just going to sign you up for classes. So we started the classes, and um, it was a nine-week class, and we did that for, seemed like forever. Nine weeks. Nine weeks, yeah, but it seemed a lot longer than nine weeks. Um, we did that, and then, you know, we were thinking about June, July of that year. We started in the beginning of January on my birthday, and we we're thinking June, July, we'll, we'll go to this Adopt U.S. Kids. We'll pick out the child of our choice. We'll bring him to our house, and everything is going to be wonderful. Um, unfortunately, that's not what happened. It was January, and we're like, I guess this just isn't going to happen. Apparently, we're not good enough because we'd gone through all their classes, but they had no idea why it was taking so long, and so we just were frustrated. And then kind of my wife went, left on a cruise, and now it's her story. Oh, the cruise was wonderful. Let me tell you all about it. No. Um, so we, yeah, around fall, we decided, you know what? This isn't working. We're not, nothing's happening here. And so uh, maybe this just wasn't in our cards. You know, we've raised five kids in our home, but obviously we don't know what we're doing. And so we will just, let's move on with life. And so for Christmas that year, we decided that we were going to do like events, uh, adventures instead of gifts for each other. So uh, me, my mother-in-law, my mom, and Sue Davis um, went on a, a short cruise. And it was great, and I was relaxing, and life was good. And on two days before my cruise ended, we're pulling out of Mexico, and my phone connects because I don't have wireless and, or uh, internet. And all of a sudden, my phone connects, so I'm like, ding, 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 you know, and I'm sitting there like, quick because I like my phone and I'm looking through and I see I got a voicemail from a number I don't know and so I listen real quick and I we're getting ready to pull out of port so I know this window is very short and it's a message from DSS that says congratulations you have been approved a slight pause and we have five siblings that we need emergency placement for are you able to take them? And I was like, 
um, oh my gosh, I like look at across the table at the people with me and I'm like, I, I just got this phone call. Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do here. I'm losing service right now. We're like starting to move out of port. Call Dan. Hey Dan, I'm going to lose service any minute now, but I'm sending you a voicemail from DSS. They have five kids. I don't, don't ask me questions. I know nothing. Here's the phone number. Call. See ya. Bye. <laughs> and then I lost service. And I said, hmm, I don't know what is happening right now. Now, for someone who likes to control things and have, have things set how I want them, this was not a very easy thing for the next two days, wondering what was going on at home. Because I could picture both scenarios. I could picture Dan going, okay, I'm just going to do this. And then I could also picture him going, uh, my wife's gone. Can we just wait a few days? And so I didn't know. And so I'm waiting, and I don't have service. And I look over, and I'm talking about it constantly. Oh, I wonder about these kids. And I'm all excited, and I just don't know. And I look over, and my mom's texting someone. And I'm like, do you have service? Like, I have been talking this whole time about I wish I knew I was going home. And she's here texting. She's like, oh, yeah, I have T-Mobile. I get service. And I'm like can I use your phone? (laughs) And so I get her phone and I find out that Dan has called Larry and said, Larry, you need to come over and help me clean my house. My wife's been gone for a week (laughs) and I'm having five kids coming to my house right now. And so Larry comes over with a, makes his pot of chili that he's known for and they clean my house. And around 10 o'clock that evening, DSS comes with five kids, some trash bags, toothbrushes, and Happy Meals. And life as we know it then changes. Now, we, um, I I get this, as I get back into the airport, now he's had the kids for two days, I get a, a message and it gives me a link, right? And so I click on the link and it's a news story about five severely abused children from Mardella, that parents have locked in closets and tased and fed dog poop and like like extreme abuse situation and I am like oh my goodness okay I'm not qualified for this we were going to pick the child off this website when when we had Kenzie and we said we wanted to fill the gap we meant like with one kid we didn't want to fill the gap because the kids were 10 9 8 6 and 5 and so it was literally filling our gap between our 13 year old and our 4 year old and so it was not what we expected. I come home, I drive in my driveway, and kids pour out of my house. Now, I don't know them. I don't know their names. And they come out, and I walk, get out of the car, and I go, hey, what are you all doing at my house? And they're like, are you that dude's girlfriend? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm his wife. A wife? What's a wife? I said, well, I'm married to him. And... Um, And so there starts our adventure. Now we have kids bouncing off the walls. I wasn't sure. You know, I just didn't know what to expect. And so we have kids jumping on couches and whining. And the the noise was about... I I can't reach that high. We don't have inside voices. And um, the first... The day I get... The next day after I get home, I get home in the afternoon. The next day I, I have to bring them all to get shots and get blood drawn. Okay. Hi my name's Heather. I'm going to be taking care of us. Let's go get needles. <laughs> not, not a fun thing to do with a bunch of kids you don't know um, or your own kids. And so then we come to church the next day and the church is so welcoming. Each one of you that were here, and I'm going to cry, just saying it because then it helps me not cry. Um, they 
We get bags of clothes and financial donations and meals brought to our house. And, and we feel the love for all of these kids that we're bringing to church for the first time that they're going to come and they're going to hear about God and see people who are going to love them and be a part of their journey in life. And so that first day at church, we get out and at the end, uh, Dwight, he, he was nine, eight years old, and he wants to go with, we can't drive one car. And so he wants to go with Dan, but Dan's stopping at a store on the way home. And Dan's like, I'm not taking them in a store. Um, and so, <laughs> so he, he, he says, Dwight, you go with Heather. Well, that Dwight, was a experience. yeah, <laughs> he says, so Dwight doesn't want to go with me. And I said, no, we're going, we're going. And so I take him and I'm like, come on in the car trying to, you know, steer him in the car. He's angry. He is angry. And he crawls in the back, and he starts kicking and hitting. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Bye, Dan. Have fun at the store. And I pop the trunk of my car because he's in the backseat of the minivan. So some of you might have seen this. It was, I'm sure, very attractive. I crawl into the trunk of my van because it's the only way I can reach him. And I reach around the car, and I grab Dwight, and I just hold him like this. And he is fighting me. He is causing me to bleed. I have psoriasis on my hands and he's just digging me up. And I just sit there and I go, Dwight, you're not going to be allowed to hit. We are so glad you're with us though. We love you, Dwight, but you're not allowed to hit. And I keep kissing him on the side of his head, which makes his siblings laugh, which makes him a little more angry. And I just keep saying, Dwight, you know what? We're so glad you're here, but you're not going to be allowed to act like this. So I'm going to let go. I'm telling him, you put your hands on me. I was like, well, hugging's not illegal. And I said, I'm going to let go, and I'm going to start driving. But if you do it again, I'm going to pull over. You can't pull over. The police officers will get you. And I was like, no, 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 that's not how that works. But I'm telling you, I'm letting go. Okay. Get in my car. I make it down to the main drag, that first gas station there. And he's freaking out again. And I get pulling as far back in the gas station as I can get because I know this is going to look great for anybody driving by. And I crawl in my trunk again of my van, lift it, and I'm hanging out my trunk, and I'm hugging Dwight again and telling him, listen, we're not going to do this. We are so glad you're here, but we are not going to do this. You are not allowed to hurt anybody. And he's, he doesn't know what to do, but he now knows that if I tell him something, then I'm, I'm going to do it. And so I said, I'm going to let go again. I'm going to start driving. And if you do it again, guess what? I'm going to pull over again. We didn't have an issue for the rest of the day until we got home. And then trash got thrown across my upstairs, a whole bucket of trash. And, and clothes got thrown down the stairs and new blankets. And so life, I was like, we were running on adrenaline at this time. And we're like okay, we can do this. We can do this. And I'd look at Dan and he'd be in the corner shaking. <laughs> I am, I have done children's ministry my whole life. So I felt like I was just in a really bad children's ministry that the parents never came and picked the kids up. And so I, I was like, I can do this. I'm from a large family. So the activity wasn't too much for me. And Dan's, Dan's going, I don't know if I can do this. He had like a sister that's a lot older and a sister that's a lot younger. So his his household was a lot quieter than mine. And so my sister said, hey, you know what? Because she takes in a lot of people at her house. She said, this is what helps my husband. And she sent him a big thing of earplugs. And so he lived, he lived the first like two months with earplugs in his ears. And, you know, 
at the beginning, you run on adrenaline and you run on people bringing you meals and the, the thankfulness you feel because people are like, wow, you're doing an awesome job. You don't know how many times I've been told, oh, you guys, we couldn't do what you're doing. Oh, you're, you're going to have a special place in heaven. Oh, you're an angel. And, and, you know, at the beginning, you're like, yeah, I'm doing a good job here. Yeah. And then soon life just continues going down where you're getting phone calls from teachers every day and you're breaking up fist fights in your backyard and you're the laundry just never ends and no one's taking care of anything and it gets tiring and all of a sudden you know all the people that were helping at the beginning it kind of dwindle and now it's our job and it gets tiring and you start feeling parched again <laughs> i don't know if i want to do this this is too tiring why did we decide this what 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 was going through our heads it was originally for 15 days yeah they had asked us to have these kids for 15 days and so now it's going on today is like 19 months that we have had them. Um, we, during this time, Dan and I, we learned so much. We learned so much about ourselves, and we also learned so much about loving. And Dan, why don't you share a couple things you learned? Sure. Um, you know, we always talk about what would Jesus do? Oh, we want to love them like Jesus. And, of course, that was our main goal is, listen, we got these kids. We're going to love them like Jesus. But those are so shallow words unless you actually go out and start to love. Sometimes, and you know what? Sometimes love that you get in return isn't what you really are expecting. They don't know how to love because their home environment, they were pitted against each other. It, it's to gain their mother's approval. So as I was journeying through this uh, one morning, one afternoon, my wife calls and one of the children, I'm not going to say who, but um, is just flipping out. I can't, we don't remember why. It was actually pretty common. Um, and he just, he was taunting and just, he was, break, he was breaking things, and, which is common in our house, by the way. Um, and I come home, and he's, you know, he's already said he's running away. I come home. Of course, he's not going to run away because we're his home. And he knows, even though they're mad at us, they know that we love them. And he's, he's looking at me and just trying to figure out, engage me. So I leave him outside. You know, he's looking inside because he's, he's ran away. <laughs> In our front yard. <laughs> In our front yard. And so we just got a, a retaining wall done in our house um, because we had problems with erosion. And... We, the kids were told not to play on the retaining wall. It's brand new. <laughs> and so he's just jumping on the retaining wall and going over. And so finally, I say, what are you doing? I, get, I leave the house and I say, why are you on my retaining wall? Why, you know better. Oh, sorry. So, um, <laughs> and he takes off. For some reason, I take off after him. And I just start running. And he's like probably from here to almost the door going outside. And I still have major issues with my knees because I did catch him. And I turned him around, and I look at him, and his, like, his whole demeanor, he's, like, shaking. He's afraid that I'm going to hurt him. And I told him, I said, Dwight, I'm not going to hurt you, but we're going to have a conversation. And um, we talked, and it's just, I think he just wanted out. But it was moments like that over and over and over again. And I could, we could go through each one of them. That we realized 
we don't really know how to love. You know, we, we, me and my wife say all the time, you know, God did not bring these kids to us so that we could change them. God brought these kids to us so that he could change us. Because we really do not understand Christ-like love until you're in a position where you've got to love when there's nothing really to get back. When you have your own children, you know, and, and they do love back now. They're, I mean, it's, it's really great to see how they are moving forward. Um, and it's not, it's really, it's a challenge, but it's also very rewarding. You know, the other thing I learned was I have a lot to work on as a human being. Um, you know, when we, don't, when we step out, God shows us our imperfections, the things that are really nasty. And I actually started going to counseling um, to deal with some of my anger issues from previous, you know, a lot of it has to do with the church and with the Christians. Um, honestly, most of it does. Um, I had great parents, you know, that loved me and supported me and wanted the best for me. Um, but as a man, I'm always trying to fix things myself instead of just relying on people that have gone through it and say, listen, these are the mechanisms and the ways that you can help yourself. Um, So as this journey has kind of gone on, it's really helped me realize that, man, I am so far away from what I need to be. And the reason why I'm, I'm really emphasizing this is the fact that, you know, if we don't step out in faith, and do the things that God asks us to do, then we're like me at the beginning five years ago that says, why do I feel like God's not talking to me? Why is God not shaking the mountains when I'm around? When I move forward, I just felt empty. But it's because I was sitting in the background just watching everybody else and complaining about how things weren't getting done instead of being an active force. And this world's not going to change unless we're a part of that active force. A couple things that I learned. Um, number one is God's timing is not our timing. Uh, like Dan said, I got pregnant. I was almost 40. A geriatric pregnancy, they called it. And, and I cried my whole pregnancy. Like, I think my whole pregnancy, like literally every day, I cried because I was like, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to start over again. We have kids. They're almost grown. I don't want to do this. God, why? Why, why is this happening right now? I'm, uh, and, and everybody said, and don't worry, once she's here, you won't be able to imagine life without her. And sure enough, you all know, Kenzie's like, uh, she's my one child who's a mama's girl. As much as these ones love me so much, right, girls? She's the mama's girl. And and I can't imagine my life without her. But I don't think God gave us Kenzie just because I needed a mama's girl. And, and I think God gave us Kenzie to spur us to this adoption, to this foster system. Because we wouldn't have done it. Our life was comfortable. Our kids were grown. We wouldn't have thought, oh, let's get another kid. We were, we were, we were good. But God put things in our path to say, listen, I'm going to start you down this, this road here. And you might not have any idea. But my timing is not your timing. You thought you were done raising kids. Well, that's not my timing. And the whole time, again, as women, a lot of times we like to control everything. And this whole time having these kids, I have had to realize that I can't be in control of everything. Because I literally can't be in control of everything. I want to be in control of everything, but I can't. Because first off, God has a timing that's not our timing. And secondly, 
there's a system, the DSS system, that, that does a lot of things. And I had to learn to let go of that control and say, okay, God, you know what? You see these kids, yeah, it was supposed to be 15 days, and now it's two months, and now it's four months, and now it's eight months. And now they say, oh, at the beginning of the summer. And now they say, okay, now it's midsummer. And my timing chart is like, no, you said this, and we need to move forward with this. And I had to really learn that, you know what? We're seeing great families step into these kids' lives, and it's because of God's timing, and it's because of God's purpose in these kids' lives. And if we had messed it up with forcing things that we thought, it wouldn't be what it should be. Another thing that um, I learned is that God's will, God's call for our lives will always be uncomfortable at times. And if you're not ever experiencing uncomfort in your life, then guess what? You're not doing what God wants you to do. Because he is going to want to change us from who we are to become something way better. And that's not fun. It's not, now there's highlights, and I can tell you some highlights, and then there's lots of valleys. And um, I, Dan, I own a, a business, a Christian company, uh, and our tagline is uh, shine brightly. And we say it all the time at the end of our emails and things like that. And, you know, there are two times in the Bible where people actually, their faces shone brightly because of experiencing God. Now, the first time was in Exodus 34 with Moses. He was on a mountaintop. He had a great worship service with God. God appeared to him. And guess what he did? He came down from the mountain and everybody's like, oh, we can't look at Moses' face because he's shining brightly. Pretty weird, but that's pretty cool. And we all have had those times where we're like at the mountaintop. We've gone to a great concert or a great retreat or a great, whatever, had a great service or whatever. And we feel like we're shining. Ah, this is great. You know, God is working through me. Everybody sees him because my life is great. But that's not the only time God shone brightly in the Bible that we see where it actually affected somebody's face. The other time is in the New Testament, and it's in Acts 6. And there was a man named Peter, I mean Peter, Stephen. A man named Stephen. And those of you who might not know, Stephen actually was telling people about Jesus, and they didn't, it was illegal. They didn't want him to. And so what they would do when they caught Christians or followers of the way is that they would stone them. So they would take him out and then they would throw rocks at them until they died. And so Stephen was being stoned for following Jesus. He was sacrificing everything, his life. He sacrificed his life. And guess what it said? When they looked at him, his face shone brightly. God wants to shine brightly when our lives are in those good points, but he also wants to use difficulties and hard times and the times where we're sacrificing everything. And he wants to shine brightly through us then as well. And if you never have to sacrifice, you won't ever realize the depth of God's love for us and how much he wants to use us. And so... Um, that is definitely something that I have learned, you know, having served in church most of my life. Church is fun to serve in. You go back and you do an hour of service. God wants way more than that. He wants us to serve on the mountaintop, but he also wants to serve in sacrifice. So ask God today, what sacrifice does he want you to make? Because if you're not willing to sacrifice, then you might need to spend a little more time evaluating what your relationship with Jesus is like, because he does call us to sacrifice. Oh, don't worry about that. So 
here's the last thought. I'll give it to you now, and then we want to do something unique um, to close our service a couple different ways. Um, for those of you, you're feeling Nazis. I've got your, your thought right here. <laughs> Seek to know how God's grace is moving and join him regardless of the cost. There's always a cost. It costs Jesus something. It still costs us something. And this is the way that Jesus is still alive on earth today is through the church. And the church is not a building. The church is not an organization. It's a gathering of God's people when they begin to move in the direction of God's mission to accomplish something for God's glory. Amen?